it appears to be quite common that amniotic fluid gains access to the maternal circulation but for some reason in a very very small number of women it triggers this severe immune condition. Welcome to episode 20 of the Ops and Gyne Quick Care Podcast. Welcome back. Um, so uh, this week I have um, uh, Associate Professor Nolan McDonnell back with me again. Um, last week we cornered him and got him to tell us about a very interesting and challenging case he had as a senior registrar uh, involving uh, an amniotic fluid embolism uh, patient who collapsed and had coagulopathy and severe right heart failure. Um, so I encourage those of you who haven't heard that to go back and listen to that first. Very interesting and uh, a great segue into this um, discussion we're going to have today where I'm going to basically um, try and delve into the topic of amniotic fluid em- embolism in detail and pick uh, Nolan's brain on some of the um, uh, minutiae and, and details in, in this really interesting um, phenomenon. Um, so Nolan, um, so I've already mentioned that you had this really interesting case when you were a senior registrar, but just reflecting back on that, do you want to sort of perhaps um, tell us about how you then... Um, went on to get sort of more involved in um, in the research and uh, investigation of this um, fascinating disorder. Yeah, thanks, Roger. Well, I, I think there was a few things from this particular case which really hit home uh, from my side. And I think the first one was that at the end of the case and when it was all done and dusted, we could pat ourselves on the back in terms of what actually happened with this particular lady and the great outcomes for her and her baby. Um, but on the other hand, it also reinforced that there was not a lot of teaching in the ANSCA curriculum at that particular point in time, as well as in most hospitals about the implications of resuscitation of pregnant women and some of the uh, some of the key things that you need to do differently when you're resuscitating pregnant women. Um, and it also highlighted to me just the lack of knowledge that we had around amniotic fluid embolism and the lack of profile that it had. Uh, And so essentially when I came here to Perth um, in 2006, uh, the Australian Maternal Mortality Report had actually just been released um, at that particular point in time. And amniotic fluid embolism was the, at that point, the leading cause of direct maternal mortality in Australia for reasons that uh, still today are not very clear. Uh, and in the maternal mortality report, it talked about setting up a registry of, uh, of AFE cases uh, in Australia. Uh, and so I wrote to uh, essentially the authors of maternal mortality report saying that I was really interested in this and I was uh, keen to get involved in setting up a registry. Uh, and so that one thing led to another and essentially we set up this whole uh, investigative unit called AMOS uh, looking at rare disorders of pregnancy uh, of which AFE is one of the disorders that we uh, continually continually investigate uh, essentially from that particular uh, point in time so uh, it's led to a number of things from my side um, uh, obviously lots of involvement on research and teaching associated with amniotic fluid embolism uh, and also since that particular point in time as much as it's a rare disorder of pregnancy 
uh, I've personally been involved in at least uh, two other cases in my time as an obstetric anaesthetist now. So at least three cases uh, that I've now been personally involved with with AFE. So as much as we call it a rare disorder of pregnancy, for those working in the field, uh, it's likely to be something that we do come across uh, in our day-to-day -day practice at unpredictable points in time. And I think um, now's probably a good time, Nolan, uh, to ask you maybe um, to clarify with the, with the um, listeners, um, what are the sort of key clinical features and uh, diagnostic criteria of amniotic fluid embolism? Um, this is a tricky one to answer, I know, because um, uh, it's, uh, there is no sort of real, real um, definitive test that we can perform. So do you want to talk around that topic? Um, yeah, it is a, it is a very um, tricky, tricky area at this particular point in time. Um, and there's historical reasons for that, um, which I'll come to uh, as we as we go through this interview potentially. Um, but really, the the key diagnostic criteria is a maternal collapse, um, so cardiovascular or respiratory compromise in a lady who's pregnant or recently pregnant um, that cannot be explained by other causes essentially. So. Yep. It's a uh, maternal collapse that's not explained by other causes. Um, there's a variety of diagnostic criteria which have been published, um, but for reasons that we'll come to, aren't necessarily particularly useful at this particular point in time. And that primarily relates to where our current thinking is in relation to what's going on with an amniotic fluid embolism. Okay, and so I'm sure many of our listeners know that um there's a lot of discussion and what has been for quite a long time that the word embolism is probably the, the word in the uh, in, in its name which should be um, is perhaps debatable whether it should be there or not so do you want to um, discuss with us what is the current sort of theories that are um, uh, punted around about what is the biological mechanism behind this condition and the pathophysiology that causes it so so uh, what sort of triggers it and, and then how does that play out in the in the in the patient and how it affects their physiology. Mm. So it, it is complex uh, on a few levels. The, the first one being that this is a condition which is really hard to investigate in the sense that we don't have an animal model that we can reproduce the, the syndrome of what we associate with amniotic fluid embolism in. Uh, and so a lot of the features of it um, and what we think is going on is is really theoretical um, based on cases which uh, people have encountered and, and case series which have been done. Um, essentially what we think at this particular point in time, and I do stress at this particular point in time because it is a, it is a moving target in terms of what we think is going on, um, is that this is primarily an immune mediated phenomena. Um, and so we think amniotic fluid gets access to the maternal circulation uh, and we think that actually occurs very commonly in pregnancy um, so it appears to be quite common that amniotic fluid gains access to the maternal circulation but for some reason in a very very small number of women it triggers this severe immune condition and there's a number of features which uh, point to it being an immune mediated phenomena in terms of uh, some of the features associated with complement levels um, it's more likely to be in a male fetus as opposed to a female fetus and a few other features which point to it being an immune mediated phenomena. 
Um, but essentially that immune-mediated phenomena uh, tends to cause acute pulmonary hypertension uh, and pulmonary vasoconstriction leading to acute right heart failure. Uh, it is associated with a coagulopathy, which the cause of which is unclear, um, but it does appear in a number of cases to be a rapidly developing coagulopathy. Uh, and then uh, really depending on the sorts of investigative modalities that you've got available in terms of pulmonary artery catheters versus transesophageal echocardiography, you tend to see uh, that right heart failure being replaced by left heart failure further down the track. In some cases that occurs relatively early, in other cases it tends to occur after a few hours that you get uh, left heart failure essentially. Okay, and so one of the things that is always, um, uh, you know, I've always found interesting is this discussion, I think maybe in some of the older literature, if, correct me if I'm wrong, Nolan, about um, certainly in the post-mortem cases looking for um, fetal squames in the lung circulation, you know, is that involved, is that thought to have any significance whatsoever? I mean, I guess that's where the, old, the older theories were, some sort of embolic phenomenon came from. Yeah, it's, um, it's not overly useful um, and so if you have an isolated post-mortem finding of fetal squames in the maternal vasculature and you don't have other clinical features to suggest you've had an acute maternal collapse and features that we would associate with a relatively typical amniotic fluid embolism we don't tend to use that as the key diagnostic test essentially um, so obviously it's supportive if there's fetal squames in the maternal pulmonary vasculature but it's not diagnostic of amniotic fluid embolism. Um, so unfortunately, there's no one diagnostic test that we can use for AFE. It's purely a clinical diagnosis. Is there any uh, thoughts or has anyone um, sort of narrowed down what they think is the actual molecular trigger? Like, what is it actually in amniotic fluid that can perhaps trigger this, um, this reaction? Um, and this is, a, I guess, is of interest because I'm a bit of an enthusiast for cell salvage, and so there's all this discussion about um, making sure when you reinfuse blood that you've removed any potential to trigger an amniotic fluid embolism. But I always, always thought if we actually knew what it was that triggers AFE, then we can, um, you know, have a bit better uh, idea about um, managing this condition and/or making cell salvage safe. The short answer is basically no. Um, no one is really certain about what the triggering mechanism might actually be. We know the condition is worse if there's meconium in that amniotic fluid, um, which makes sense from in terms of what meconium can do um, from an obstructive viewpoint if it gets access to the pulmonary circulation. Um, but in terms of what a potential triggering molecule is uh, in that amniotic fluid, um, there's a number of vasoactive molecules present in amniotic fluid, um, but because the condition is triggered in such a small potential proportion of women exposed to amniotic fluid, um, we really just don't know what that actual triggering molecule is. Okay, let's move on to the incidence. So what, what is the thought to be the actual incidence of this condition and the severity? I know that... Um, this has perhaps changed a little bit over the years. It might just be more cases are being reported. Perhaps we're getting better at treating it, but do you want to um, lead us through with a current sort of understanding of the state of play in this area? So you have to be very, very careful when you're looking at incidence data for a condition such as amniotic fluid embolism because it really depends on how the data has been captured 
um, as to whether that diagnosis is actually valid or not. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we set up our Australasian registry is so that we could try and control a little bit more some of the, the diagnoses of amniotic fluid embolism. Um, so uh, there's been very good research done um, by the likes of Marion Knight, who works with us in AMOS, um, but is involved um, in the UK equivalent, which is called UKOS. Uh, that essentially shows the way that you capture this information is really important to your actual incident uh, outcomes from things. Now, our AMOS data that we've published um, showed an incidence of roughly 1 in 20,000 women um, being diagnosed with an amniotic fluid embolism. And the literature, as I said, depending on how that data has been captured, varies from anywhere from sort of 1 in 8,000 through to 1 in 20 to 1 in 30,000 uh, deliveries uh, might be associated with a case of amniotic fluid embolism. Um, so rare, but um, unpredictable. So certainly rare, um, but common enough that most people hear of one, you know, certainly here in WA, we hear of, I think on average, hear of one at least sort of approximately one a year, um, which is pretty concerning, isn't it? Mm. So that I think we've just discussed most of the um, sort of um, demographic uh, data surrounding this condition. Um, now I, was just, I guess we can move on to, um, you know, what can we do treatment-wise? So interesting your discuss case discussion uh, on nitric oxide but um, what do you what do you th I mean obviously basic sort of advanced life support but um, what so else I, I, uh, uh, on top of that should we be thinking of um, mm -hmm. specifically for this condition so I think it, it raises a number of points and I, I might digress slightly first and just talk about some of the outcome data for amniotic fluid embolism and so the initial case series um, reported incredibly high maternal mortality sort of in the order of 70 to 90 percent maternal mortality for amniotic fluid embolism. These days, the case fatality rates are sort of anywhere from 15 to 40%. And so the case fatality rates have dropped off quite dramatically. And that's probably in part to a few things. Uh, firstly, the improved uh, life support that we can give on scene in terms of the teaching and training and some of the uh, technology that we've got available to us. The advances in intensive care treatments that are available as well. In addition to potentially more milder cases being involved or being reported in case registries as our awareness goes up. So in terms of the actual treatment of uh, the condition, and it's an interesting question because I have been asked in the past, can you give us a treatment algorithm for amniotic fluid embolism? And essentially, uh, I've always said to people, no, that we cannot give you a treatment algorithm for amniotic fluid embolism because AFE is essentially a clinical diagnosis which you make once you've ruled out other potential causes of maternal collapse um, and those presenting features. And so essentially the treatment of it is primarily supportive. Um, so airway, breathing, circulation, anticipating uh, the rapid development of coagulopathies and then I always talk about using the technology that you've got available to you um, and that you've got ready access to. So if you're a obstetric unit associated with an intensive care unit, depending on what that ICU has available in terms of other support. So uh, people have talked about using uh, things like ECMO, um, other forms of bypass support, cardi cardiopulmonary bypass support, through to other things such as echocardiography, uh, all sorts of 
not so much weird and wonderful, but all sorts of other targeted therapies depending on the technology that people have got available to them. Uh, so I think it's important to really focus the treatment as being supportive, um, realizing that there's uh, no sort of key intervention besides the key things that we would normally do for the management of a collapsed obstetric patient that we should be doing in these ladies. Um, important to anticipate that coagulopathy because it can occur particularly rapidly uh, in these women. Um, but then essentially using the technology that you've got available um, to help you care for this lady. That may mean uh, transferring them off-site to a unit um, that's got an intensive care associated with it. Um, it really just depends on what you've got available in your particular institution as to what further sort of advanced treatments you might be able to give your, uh, your particular patient. Okay, <clears throat> and it's quite interesting that you mentioned ECMO because I know this is obviously a very topical in um, you know, life support and resuscitation in general uh, um, and critical care. So there have been, I, I did read a case report recently of ECMO being used, I think it was in um, Taiwan. Uh, for someone who had amyloid fluid embolism. What do you think the future holds? Um, so we've already discussed that there's no animal model, so it makes research um, difficult in this condition because it occurs so um, um, uncommonly. But is there any other ways that uh, we can gain some knowledge in this area? I mean, I think it's great this uh, registry that we have running here in Australia and the UK. It's a real, a real chance for us to get a bit more knowledge in, the, uh, in this area. But have you got any other thoughts on that? No. Um, so a few thoughts. Um, I guess one of the first ones is, uh, so Stephen Clark is one of the bastions of, uh, of research and teaching on amniotic fluid embolism. And he's um, made some very important comments over the last couple of years that in many ways we need to wipe the slate clean in terms of our thinking of amniotic fluid embolism and to essentially start again. Um, because we've been, in essence, led astray by various um, uh, case reports and theories from 60s, 70s and 80s that have sort of led us potentially down the wrong tracks in terms of what we've been thinking about with amniotic fluid embolism. So I think in many ways we, we do need to wipe the slate clean in terms of what we're thinking and uh, in terms of from a research perspective with it in terms of what could potentially be going on. Um, in terms of what does the future hold for it, um, the more we learn about the condition, um, the better. Um, but currently, because of the lack of a, a decent animal model for it, the primary way that we can learn about the condition is through the publication of case reports and case series. Um, and that's where the sort of the anaesthetic community and obstetric community comes into play by sharing their experiences on these particular cases things they might have seen, novel things that might have happened with particular cases, um, so that we can all learn more about what potentially might happen uh, or might go on with them. And I think uh, it was highlighted in one of the other cases that we had here at King Edward, um, where we showed using uh, rotum um, thromboelastometry coagulation screening that uh, the coagulopathy in a case that we had here was primarily hyperfibrinolysis and so there was severe hyperfibrinolysis in, uh, in the case that we had, uh, one of the cases that we had here at King Edward. The treatment of which was actually relatively straightforward in terms of some tranexamic acid and some fibrinogen supplementation. Uh, and so cases like that and using the technology that we've now got available to us 
uh, is certainly helping to uh, help us learn more about what potentially is going on with the various things that are happening in this particular condition. Thanks, Nolan. I think we've done a very comprehensive uh, deep dive in, uh, into the topic of amniotic fluid embolism, sort of a key sort of critical care topic for um, obstetrics. Um, I can't think of any other questions, but um, I'm sure um, I'm going to get you back on the, on the podcast for some other stuff uh, in the future. Thanks again. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Roger. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic you just listened to. See you again next time.